Hey, open your Bibles. If you brought a Bible to Matthew chapter 5 tonight, and uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, or maybe this is your first time to church, that's awesome. And don't feel weird about not having a Bible. I'm going to put some of these verses on the screen for you tonight. Well, hey, I uh, would love to show a quick picture of my family, just so you're trying to get to know me. I'm going to be speaking to you in three sessions. I hope you'll come back tomorrow. I hope I can set the hook tonight, because I think we got some great stuff tomorrow. But this is a picture of my family, my wife, Lindley. We have four teenagers, Ava, Max, Miles, and Jack, and they are my heart. It's hard to be away from them, but it's great to be back in the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Northwest Illinois, and uh, grew up near the Quad City area of Iowa, and some of my favorite memories growing up were traveling to the Quad Cities and doing things with my family, so it's, it's fun to be back in the Midwest. But man, when I come to a men's conference, I always want to make sure I say the right thing. Have you ever said the wrong thing? Can I tell you a quick story about one time I said the wrong thing? Todd, I bet you have stories too as a pastor. One of the first times I remember uh, doing baptism as a pastor, I was a young pastor, and my neighbor, Susan, had come to faith in Jesus, and she was being baptized, and we were in front of the whole church, and I was up in the baptistry, I was in the water, and you know, a lot of, a lot of folks, you don't sometimes know them personally, so you just dunk them, you know, and move on, and you're grateful to do that. But with Susan, I felt like, man, I know this lady, she's my... You know, she lives right next door. I need to say some personal things, so I'm, I'm personal as a pastor. So she gets in, in the water, and I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm making it up on the spot, which is a bad idea. And I said, well, I, church, I just want you to know, this is, this is Susan, and she's a special lady. Uh, she lives right next door, which means I can go to her house and get sugar anytime I want. <laughs> and my, my wife's mouth just dropped. Like, you could have said eggs, flour, anything. I'm going to go to the house and get sugar anytime I want. The, to, the next day, I went into my office, and Susan's husband named Tom, his name's Tom, was a great friend of mine. Uh, he had put a five-pound bag of sugar on my desk. <laughs> and it just had a note on it that said, stay away from my wife. <laughs> so I hope I don't do that tonight. I hope I don't say the wrong thing. But, man, I prayed by the power of the Holy Spirit that God would use me as a conduit this weekend to, to say something that would massively challenge and change your lives. Uh, I heard a preacher say once that our lives are not changed by sermons. Our lives are changed by sentences. There's going to be one sentence tonight. Probably one sentence. It's all you leave with. And I want to, if I run into you over the weekend, I'll say, hey, what's your sentence? So as I'm preaching tonight, as I'm teaching from God's word tonight, be thinking about what you might share with another man about, hey, there was this one sentence tonight that got me, get you opening up. Well, I love to preach to men because I think our country is in the midst of a full-blown code red man crisis. Men are disengaging from leadership at home and at church. It has been said, and I agree with this, that as the man goes, so goes the marriage. As marriage goes, so goes the family. As family goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the community. And as community goes, so goes the country. So no pressure. It's all riding on you guys. But there really is, even biblically speaking, if you read the Bible, the man is assigned a leadership role in the home, and men are assigned key and leadership roles in the kingdom. And if we want to see a movement of the Holy Spirit across this country, we have to pray that God would raise up a generation of strong and courageous and sacrificial men. And that's why you're in this room tonight, I hope. Because God's calling you to be one of those. So let me just begin with a confession as you're getting to know me. I love football. Uh, anybody else? All right. Go Chiefs. Yeah. 13 seconds is all you need, baby. 
I love particularly college football, all right? Any college football fans in the house here? Some? Okay. Well, I live for the fall. It's my favorite time of year. Uh, not only do I love the game, but I just want to recognize that college football has inspired the greatest movie of all time, and we all know what that is. It's Rudy, okay? If you haven't seen Rudy, you should get your heart right with God tonight. Rudy is the true story, for those of you who haven't seen it, of a young man from Indiana who dreams of playing for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team to run out of that tunnel, to slap that wall, to play like a champion, and sadly, God did not give him the frame for football. And so, and he's a David in a room full of Goliaths, but because of his grit and his determination, he makes the practice squad, and, and he's going to one day get, get some playing time. Rudy's dad, by the way, is a Notre Dame super fan and a very gifted dream squasher. And he and his family make fun of Rudy for even suggesting that he'll ever step foot on the, on the field in a gold uniform. And on the last day of Rudy's college career, he begs his dad to come and watch him play. If you've seen the movie, you remember this scene. And what happens next is one of my favorite moments in the film. His dad walks into the stadium and for the first time in his life, takes in what only he has seen through a television set and overwhelmed by the eye candy. You remember this? We got, we got a picture. There's Rudy's dad. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is this, these words. This is the most beautiful sight these eyes have ever seen. This is the most beautiful sight these eyes have ever seen. Now hang with me. One of the greatest gifts that God has given to any of us is the ability to see. If you're here today and you have the gift of sight, it's probably not something that you wake up every morning and you thank God that you can see, but think about how important it is to see. We make bucket lists of things we want to see before we die. I want to see it with my own eyes. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. First Corinthians says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So seeing is central both physically and spiritually, which leads us to Matthew chapter five, Jesus in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter five, verse eight. Here's kind of our key verse tonight that I want to unpack. Listen, listen to what the word says. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall, watch this, see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You heard that correctly. If your heart is right, if your heart is right, you, you get to make Rudy's dad's statement one day. One day you will see God and you will say, this is the most beautiful sight that these eyes have ever seen. What is there to look forward into life more than the day that you will see God with your own eyes? First John chapter three, verse two says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him. Now, one of the questions that people rightly raise is who gets the front row seats? Who gets to see God? Is it people who attend church the most while they're alive? Uh, is it people who give the most amount of money in an offering plate? Is it the people who go on the most mission trips? Uh, none of that Jesus includes in this. Jesus said the thing that matters the most to God is not church attendance or the amount of money you give or trips that you take. The thing that matters the most to God tonight about you is your heart. When Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day, he did not like what he saw in their hearts. He called them whitewashed tombs. The religious leaders, the so-called spiritual leaders, whitewashed tombs, what does that mean? On the outside, they look clean and white, but on the inside, full of dead man's bones. And one of the things that we as men are amazing at doing is we paint the exterior. We give the impression that we've got it all together, but inside, we're a mess. Uh, Travis, I appreciate your authenticity about uh, the, the assumptions you made about me. Um, 
<laughs> I do it all the time with people. I just assume things. People think because I'm the president of a Christian company that I, I don't have a lot of wounds or pain in my life. Uh, I don't have uh, a relationship really with either one of my parents. Uh, it's been, in, in the last five years, I've seen them once. I don't have a dad that leans in and checks in on me. And it hurts. It hurts every day. Uh, my wife and I last year spent every week in counseling because I have a hard time communicating heart language sometimes. And I think a lot of men do. We're better at talking about what's going on in life than we are what's going on inside of here. Um, I, ha I have all the same struggles that you have. I was with a group of pastors last week and I was, at, I was interviewing them for a little piece we're doing at Lifeway and I asked them this one question, what's, what's something that you wish people understood about pastors? Almost every one of them said this, that we have all the same struggles they do. We have all the same pains, all the same hurts. We all have heart problems here. And maybe you're checking out church and you're, you're pretty new to the church scene. It may seem like there's a huge gap between you and the guy next, next to you that has highlights in his Bible. Let me assure you, there's not that big of a gap. We all have major heart problems. So here's the question that all of us have to wrestle with tonight that I just want to just begin to just kind of put this on you, okay? When God looks into my heart, ask yourself this question. When God looks into my heart, is he pleased with what he sees there? Is he pleased with what he sees here? The gospel only works, this gospel that Jesus claims to bring, if it gets all the way down to the core of who you are. It brings no effect when it's allowed to just remain up on the surface of your life. It has to go down deep inside. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure all the way down in the heart. And he uses a word there, cardia, which is the Greek word by which we get the word cardiology, the study of the human heart. But we all know that Jesus isn't talking about a blood pumping machine when he's talking about the heart. He's talking about the headwaters of your soul. He's talking about uh, what's under the surface of your life and what matters most to God. It's your inner motivations. It's who you are when no one's looking. It's that peace down inside that makes all the difference. Let me show you guys a picture. Uh, this is a, a picture that uh, you, it probably just looks like a pretty picture to you, but what this is, it's the source of the Mississippi River. That little stream way up in, in Minnesota will travel 2,300 miles before dumping into the Gulf. That little pond in the Gopher State, if it is suddenly filled with poison, 10 U.S. states due south are in a heap of trouble because the purity of the river at the source affects everything downstream. And it's this idea that inspired the, the ancient proverb. Above all else, Proverbs 4.23, above all of the things you would do in life, more important your career, more important your savings account, more important uh, in your legacy, above all things, guard your heart. For everything you do flows out of your heart. If you poison the source, every stream and tributary will turn toxic. Every relationship in your life will turn to toxic. It all has to come back to your heart. So when we talk about the man being the leader of the home or the man being the leader of the church, if you really want to get down to it, it's the heart of a man that makes the difference. And so just to be clear, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, I don't think he's peddling perfection. I don't think he's thinking that anybody's absolutely pure all by themselves. The good news of the gospel is that only Christ can clean you up and fully lance the infections. And yet there's all these verses in the Bible that says that there's a responsibility that we have to fight for the own purity in our hearts. So let me give you an example. In James chapter four, there's a question put forth. Do you not know that friendship with, with the world is, makes you an enemy with God? Okay, that's a good question. Who wants to be an enemy with God? Nobody wants to be an enemy of God. 
Well, so how do you keep from being an enemy of God? He goes on in chapter four and verse eight. Look at this verse. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I want you to notice the connection here. He's talking to Christian people, people who claim to have Jesus in their heart. James connects purity of heart with the amount of hot hypocrisy allowed in your life. You see that? Purify your hearts, you double-minded. To have a dirty heart means to live a double life. To be one thing on the exterior, but another thing on the interior. One commentator, MacArthur, he writes, double-minded, this word double-minded, it's only used by James in the New Testament. This is a person who lacks integrity, who claims one thing and lives another. You know, over the years, uh, having been a pastor for 17 years, there were times when, I, when my humanity would come out in public. And that was always an embarrassing situation. I remember one time I was at, uh, in, the, in the town where I was a pastor, I was at Best Buy, and I was trying to buy a product and get out of there fast because I was on my way to something. And this girl behind the counter was on her cell phone talking to a friend and completely ignoring me. And, you know, anybody have any customer service meltdowns in their past? All right, <laughs> I've got a bunch of them. Well, she, um, she is just having a great conversation. I, my blood pressure is going up by the second. And I had resolved if she didn't get off that phone in about three seconds, she was going to hear from me. And just as, as the, the buzzer was about to ring in my own mind, she gets off the phone, she looks at me, she goes, Ben Mandrell, oh my gosh, I love your sermons. I am there every Sunday. I never miss. And if she only knew the level of rage just moments before. And isn't this a little bit of what it's like to be human? People just assume that we've got it all together, but inside, inside our hearts, there's a whole lot going wrong. And Jesus, uh, he challenges us to look at our integrity. He says that, that the issue of our heart is not external. So one of the most challenging things Jesus says is, uh, you've heard it said, do, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who has looked upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not what happens at the hourly motel that makes you a wretch to God. It's what happens long before the hourly motel. It's what happens inside your heart. So Jesus, with x-ray vision, he knows these religious fakers. They have little chance of seeing God. You people throw stones at public figures who have moral failures when you're having the same moral failure in your heart multiple times a day. This is a problem. It's not about religious rules or behavior. It's about what's going on deep inside your heart. Now let's re rewind the tape to the very beginning of the Bible. When Adam and Eve first sin, when they first commit a sin, what do they do? They go and they hide from God. They go and they hide from God. Sin caused them to seek cover and to try to cover up what they hoped God couldn't see. And we play Adam and Eve's games all the time, don't we? Uh, we shove our junk into the back closet hoping that nobody's ever gonna find that room or crack that door. Mark Twain says it this way, every man is like the moon, he has a dark side, he doesn't want anybody to see. And so we've gotten so good at hiding things, haven't we? I'm a visual learner, and I think sometimes uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. Let me see if I can illustrate this, kind of drive this home. 
Uh, let me put an image on the screen. There, there's this part of you that represents your inner life. Th- this is your, your inner core. It's, it's who I am on the inside. Um, this represents my heart. This represents my private world, the things I think about when people don't know what I'm thinking about. Okay, you have, there's a piece of you that's there. That's who you are under the surface. Now, there's a second circle that represents the force field of your life, the outer seeable portion of your life. I call this the social media version of you. It's the part that you want people to see, and so you put it out there. It's my persona. It's not necessarily true to what's going on inside my heart, but it's true in perception as people see me from the outside. So that gap between who you are on the inside and who you are on the outside, that gap represents hypocrisy, and there's not a single one of us in this room, this guy included, that doesn't have some measure of hypocrisy at all time in your life. It's that gap between the inner and outer life that makes us gappers. And here is the good news about Jesus in the Bible. He does not have a problem hanging out with gappers. What he has a problem with is people who pretend that the gap doesn't exist. When Jesus came to the earth, he hung out with sinners and tax collectors, people who were in the religious scene often accused him of hanging out with the wrong crowd. What Jesus loved about those people was not their behavior, was how honest they were about their behavior. And there's something about church, having been around it now, that when people come into a community of faith, they think They think what draws us together in here is our strength. It is not our strength that draws us together. What draws us together in here is our weakness. And what happens in the lives of men, and it rarely happens, when one man opens up with another man about a struggle, there's this glue that forms immediately, this bond, this relationship. You know, I travel around the conference scene a lot, and so I hear a lot of conference speakers, and there's something that still befuddles me. I have yet to hear a conference speaker, maybe this should be my, be my shtick. I've yet to hear a conference speaker stand up and say, let me tell you the three biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life and what I've learned from them. If someone would do that, I would take very careful notes. But what we're good at is talking about the things that we're good at. And what Jesus wants us to do tonight, guys, is he wants us to take a hard look at the things that we're concealing. So Proverbs 28, 13, if I could just share that with you. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Over and over in Scripture, we are warned of duplicity and we are challenged to be authentic. So let me show you this picture. You know what this is? This is a picture of an artery. And as you know, one of the primary causes of a heart attack is the clogging up of your arteries. This is called too much McDonald's right here. If this gross, sticky substance grows, then the chances of you dropping dead increase day by day. A developing plaque inside you eventually becomes an emergency. I want you to think about this in a spiritual sense, and I'm going to drive this home in three different ways. I think there's some heart killers for men. I think there's there's three things that I've noticed particularly over the years that 
They're plaques that we allow to grow, and if we don't keep an eye on it, they become emergencies. And there's a lot of different ways we could go with this tonight, but I, it's just, I, I feel led to share these three things, okay? Uh, beware when one of these three things is going on in your life, okay? Beware, first of all, when you are pining for power. Beware when you are pining for power. One of the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus was the bait of becoming instantly powerful, suddenly famous. Satan casts this lure, and many of us are biting at this. We are too envious of one another's things and successes. So because of the internet, like never before, we observe the success of our colleagues and our peers, and when, when we see this on social media, our hearts are plaqued with envy. And so we start counting one another's, uh, we start counting other people's blessings, and we stop counting our own blessings. Years ago, I read this article by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring, and it just radically impacted me. He, he's talking to a group of college students, and he says to them this. He says, um, in a room this size, perhaps it was this size right here, he says, uh, many of you are going to turn out to be scoundrels. Statistically speaking, many of you in this room are going to turn out to be scoundrels. And when you turn out to be a scoundrel, let me go ahead and tell you how it happened. And he says, when you get out of college and you begin to work at your job, you're going to go hard at work trying to impress people because that's what we do. And, and you're going to notice one day that there's a group of people at, at work that use collective language. They say, oh, well, we do this or we meet on Saturday morning to discuss it. And you're going to realize that you're on the outside of a ring. And it's human nature to want to be inside the ring. And so you're going to start figuring out ways to get inside the ring. You're going to uh, modify your behavior. You're going to change the words that you use. You might even start showing up at places you didn't usually show up. And one day you're going to rejoice when you are invited inside the ring. You have arrived. But here's the part they didn't tell you. Once you get inside that ring, you find out there's another ring. There's a group within that group, and now you're back at it again. You thought you'd arrive, but not really. In order to be enough, you have to go another layer deeper. And when you get there, guess what? There's another ring. And he said, some men spend their whole lives trying to get into this thing called the inner ring. And one day they finally do. And when they do, it's like the layers of, the, of an onion, that once you get to the middle, there's nothing left. And you've given your whole life to be included in some group called the inner ring. So what's the remedy? Here's what Lewis says. When you get out of college and you find what you're divinely gifted to, you, to do, do it the very best you can do it and go to work every day with a great attitude. And the people who know what you do, they will respect you for it. I think we live in a day where, uh, because of the dynamics of our day and how interconnected we are, I see this a lot in ministry. I know you probably, this probably is surprising to you, but believe it or not, there's a lot of pastors jealous of what other pastors have. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, who look at what other people have and they pine for it. They wish they had it for themselves. Paul said what? I have learned the secret to being content. So if you're here tonight and you are focused on what somebody else has and wondering and plotting and fantasizing about how you might have what they have, you're missing out on your life. Your heart is broken. Years ago, I, I read a book um, and there was a, there was a sentence in the book. 
Their lives are not changed by sermons, but sentences. And this sentence just really stuck to me. The author said, success is when the people who know you best respect you the most. That's what success is. It's when the people who know you best respect you the most. Think about that as you pine for other things. Second thing that I think we have to be careful of is entertaining evil thoughts. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus says that marital infidelity is a process that begins in the heart before it ever surfaces in a hotel. So let's be honest about temptation in this area because as a pastor, I have seen this happen now so many times. Nobody who has an affair, and I'm saying this very carefully because I do not know the stories represented in this room. I'm not casting judgment. What I'm saying is true. Nobody that I've ever spoken to that had an affair ever dreamed they would have one. Nobody ever thinks that will happen to them. You might even be sitting there tonight thinking, I would never have an affair. But years ago, um, I heard a pastor lay out the, the, the six E's that lead to a marital affair. And it, and it almost always happens in this order, guys. The six E's of a marital affair, okay? Just, just follow me. Number one, eliminate intimacy from your marriage. I'm speaking now to those who are married in the room, but this is a helpful aside. Eliminate intimacy from your marriage. It happens quite naturally. Just have kids. What began as a fire is reduced to a domestic relationship quickly because you got ball games and birthday parties and doctor's appointments. Caretaking takes its toll on a marriage. Parenting takes priority. A marriage can easily grow cold by nobody's intention. It just can by default. Eliminate intimacy from your marriage. So there's a season where your marriage starts to feel flat or dry. So that's the first thing that happens. Number two, encounter a woman that you admire. Encounter a woman that you admire. So your marriage is losing heat, and all of a sudden there's a woman that brings the heat. She walks into a room and she impresses you. She's funny, she's smart, she's conversational, she's elegant, uh, she's servant-hearted, she's attractive. Uh, But the physical is not the attracting agent, actually. It's the emotional piece that draws a married man in. He has encountered a noble woman that he he emotionally connects with her. So eliminate intimacy from your marriage and encounter a woman that you admire. Number three, enjoy that relationship. He begins thinking more about her than he does his own wife. At this point, he should back away. Paul said to Timothy, treat younger women with all purity as you would treat a sister. So if you've begun to enjoy a relationship with a woman and it's begun to take the place of your wife, back away, treat her like a sister. He stops doing that. She is no longer a sibling. She's the off-limits apple that God has said to stay away from. He moves closer to her. He enjoys the relationship. Number four, expedite the relationship. He speeds things up. He starts hanging around after work for as long as she is there. 60% of affairs happen at work. He takes notice of her routines when she goes to the coffee shop, when she takes lunch, when she exercises, and he will scheme to find himself in those places. He can still retreat and save himself at this point, but he's now building a bridge to Fantasy Island. And when it comes to sexual thoughts, it was Martin Luther hundreds of years ago that said this, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. The next E is where the hook is set. He expresses his feelings. At some point, the idea of the relationship is so exhilarating to him that it's now worth a calculated risk. And he's smart, though. He's going to look for the right moment to find out what she's thinking, and he's going to do it in a way that he can abort the mission if she's a no-go. So what what he will do is he 
he will volley a ball into her court, is what one pastor says. And he'll say something to her, something like this, like after a meeting, he'll say, you know, I so enjoy having you in my meetings. And she'll wait to see what she says. And she may say something like, well, I feel lucky to be under your leadership. And at that moment, this adrenaline starts rushing through his veins. He, he wants to know if she has feelings for him. And so he expresses his feelings. And if she has feelings for him, at that moment, she injects something in his system that's so potent, it makes, it makes crack cocaine look like Tylenol. She boosts his ego. And at that point, the sixth and final step is an experience. It's just a time and a place is all they need. Now, let me be really careful how I talk about this. The Bible says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So I, I am not here to say, if you have walked through those steps right there, if you have been a person who took the bait, who has had an affair, there is mercy for every person in this room, no matter what, what, no matter what sin has ensnared you. And yet, when we talk about purity in heart for men, we can't not talk about this. To be, here, to be pure in heart means to be pure in marriage if you're married. And if you're attracted to a person at work or in your church or on your street, that's happening right now. One of the things I prayed before I even began speaking tonight is that, Lord, if there's a man who's moving in that direction, that tonight's message would back it away. It would save a marriage. It would save a family. If you have been thinking about a woman and you have been plotting about how to spend more time with her, how to experience the relationship, tonight, let me tell you, God knows what's going on in your heart. Back away. Because happiness is not found in other places. Happiness is found right here in your heart. So a heart killer for all of us is pining for power. A heart killer for all of us is entertaining evil thoughts. But then there's a third one, third and final one. Spilling negativity on other people. This is a heart killer. Years ago, I went on a retreat with a group of pastors in Denver. When I was a church planter in Denver, and we started a church there, and there was this older, seasoned, retired, weathered pastor that was invited. Uh, kind of like Travis said, um, I didn't know the guy. Never heard his name before. And he came, and, and he really just kind of opened up his life and his heart and began telling stories of what he had, what he had experienced in 40 or 50 years of, of ministry. But there was this one moment that stood out for me. With tears in his eyes, he shared about one of his children that had walked away from the church, his son named Mark. Mark had deep resentment and anger toward the church, and he said, I don't have all the answers on why Mark left the church, but here's one thing that I know is true. He said, my wife and I, after long days in church life, we would come home and I would speak poorly about people in the church all the time. I would speak ill of the saints in the privacy of our home. It was my way of venting all the emotions I was experiencing at church. And Mark heard all those stories. And I began to watch Mark's, Mark's heart close toward the church. And he said, negativity is the native tongue of the devil. And I don't know if there's ever been a time when it has been so easy to be negative 
part of what we do in leading, whether it's leading our home or leading in the church, whatever we lead, is we bring energy into the room. And when our heart is so darkened with negativity, it kills us and it kills those around us. So not only do we say, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your wife's heart. Above all else, guard your children's heart. Above all else, guard your coworkers' hearts. The last thing they need is more negativity being spilled into their lives. And so maybe even as I'm saying this, you realize that this is a plaque that's been growing in your life. That over and over again, you're coming into a room and you're, you're focused on all that's wrong in the world. What, what Christ calls us to do is he calls us to be the bearers of hope. It says in the, in the Bible that we should serve the Lord with gladness. It doesn't say serve the Lord with gritted teeth. Serve the Lord with gladness. I live in Nashville, and um, recently, Lindley and I have been hitting some of these like historic Civil War sites. It's actually really interesting history. And there's a town near, near Nash Nashville called Franklin, Tennessee, and there's a big battle of Franklin that happened there. And this house, this old house came under siege. And there's old bullet holes all through the house. So we're walking through this house, and the tour guide is telling us about all the different battles and all the things that happened here and where the bullet holes are. And he takes us out to this office that kind of sat out in front of the house. He said, this is actually... This is actually the part of the property that received the most fire. And it didn't, it didn't look that bad to me. And he opened the door and we went inside the house. When we went inside the house, they had taken the plaster off the walls so that you could see every hole going out into, into the sunlight. And as I stood there, I thought about myself I thought about all the men in my life that I know. This is a picture of who we are. On the outside, we want everyone to think that we've got it all together, but on the inside, it's all full of holes. A.W. Tozer said, God cannot use a man greatly until he wounds him deeply. Where is your heart wounded? Where would you say, I've got some deep-seated resentment? I've got some real hurt and pain and struggles that affect me on a daily basis. When we start to get like, serious, and I mean really serious about dealing with those heart issues, and I mean honest with God about them, that's when God begins to do our best work. So I told you that uh, my wife and I last year started a journey of counseling and in one of our first sessions with the counselor, uh, I only agreed to go to counseling because I thought she was crazy. I've told her that. I've, I've publicly spoken that. I needed someone professional to tell her that she was as crazy as I thought she was. And so we go into this session of counseling, and he starts asking me all these questions. Like, clearly, he didn't understand why we're here. And every time he asks me these hard questions, I, I give him answers, but... But all my answers are almost sermonic. It's like three points in a poem, like preachers are, you know, prepared to do. So I've got all the right answers. I'm thinking in my mind, this is probably the best counseling session he's ever been a part of. 
And after I talked for about 15 minutes, he stops me and he goes, Ben, I feel really lonely with you right now. I had never had a man tell me that in my whole life. I said, well, what do you mean you feel alone with me? I'm right here. He said, you're talking in your head and you're not sharing anything from your heart. And I wonder if maybe I'm not the only man that struggles with that. That we go day to day, week to week, and we're really good at talking about work or sports or the things that we do. And we're really poor at talking about some of the things that are buried underneath, things like fear, Loneliness, shame, hurt, guilt, the emotions of the human heart. And my prayer for you this weekend, as you go to breakout sessions, as you hear these sessions, as you fellowship with one another, that you would begin to sense a freedom to share what God's really doing in your heart. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, I'm reminded of so many times in Scripture when you would encounter a person in the Bible, Lord, it would say, and Jesus knew what was going on in the heart of the man. I wish that I could see what's going on in the hearts of these men. I wish, Lord, as I, as I speak about each of these issues, that I could see where this is a pain point for someone in the room, where this is a struggle, where it's a challenge, where it's a wound that hasn't even properly healed. Lord, you see all that. God, you see the struggle of marriage. You see the struggle of contentment. You see the struggle of negativity and anger and frustration. You know us as we truly are. And Lord, I pray for any man in this room. First of all, God, if there be any man in this room that's never received a new heart, that's never prayed to receive Christ as their Savior, that's not a, never invited you to come in and start cleaning house, Lord, if there's any man here that stumbled in this room because they were invited by a friend, but they've never received Jesus as their Savior, Lord, that tonight they would make that decision first and they would not try to do this alone. And so if you're here tonight and you've never received Christ as your Savior, Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's as simple as inviting him into your life. And so if you're here tonight you feel that tug of the Holy Spirit, you want Christ in your life to, to help you, empower you, and change you, you can cry out to him right now in the privacy of your own heart. And you could say, Lord Jesus, I invite you in. I ask you to change my heart to, to radically transform my life. Make me a child of God. Make me a disciple, a learner. Make me a missionary, one who goes and tells the good news. Today I become a Christian. Today I become a follower. Today I accept what you did for me on that cross. God, if there's anyone in this room that's made that decision tonight, Lord, I pray that it would be so, they would be so bold and have so much courage to at least share with one man tonight that they prayed that prayer, that, that they've become a brother in Christ. And yet, Lord, if there's anybody in this room who has made that decision, but the things I've preached tonight have cut to the core, have spoken to the heart, where there's hypocrisy and duplicity and a lack of integrity, Lord, I pray that any man that's got that struggle going on tonight, that they would begin to deal with it, address it, and find their heart and soul again. God, I pray that you would do a mighty thing this weekend in the lives of these men. Let iron sharpen iron and help us to challenge and encourage one another as we grow in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.